Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I just have, again, another incredible guest. We are six weeks old. We are in nine countries, and I have been so grateful for the amazing leaders that I have met in several different sectors. And today, I'm so honored to have Dr. David Weiss. He is the president and CEO of Weiss International. It's a firm in Toronto, Canada, and they specialize in innovation, leadership, and HR consulting. David has worked with many Fortune 500 companies, social enterprise, and public sector organizations. David has provided consulting on more than a thousand business and organizational projects on five continents, including Canada, the United States, England, Holland, Paris, Hungary, Italy, Israel, Russia, China, Malaysia, Uganda, South Africa, and Chile. He's delivered over 200 conference presentations. He has written over 50 journal and trade articles, and he's also the author and co-author of seven books, including Innovative Intelligence. And David, it is such an honor to have you on the podcast, so welcome. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here, and your podcast is really wonderful. I've listened to a few of them, and you're doing a wonderful, wonderful job. Thank you for doing it. Well, thank you for taking the time before a holiday here in Canada. I'm so grateful. And I want to start my questions, um, first of all, around your book, Innovative Intelligence. I'm excited to, to read your book. And I know that you talk about innovation is a key source of competitive advantage. So my question is, we have been really in uncharted waters since March 11th with with COVID-19 and it's forced us to live and work and adjust our lives. Why do you think it's so elusive for so many organizations to have or not foster innovative intelligence? Great question. Firstly, what we find in all of our research and research done by major organizations like McKinsey and, uh, and other places is that when you survey leaders, executives throughout the world, about 30% of them are satisfied with the level of innovation uh, at the present time. But when they are asked how many of them believe that innovation is essential to their future, the numbers become like 80%. So that 30% to 80% difference is called an innovation gap. For many years, the approach has been we need to develop more innovative people. And, uh, or we need to find new products and just get more innovation in the business. What we discovered and one of the big ideas in innovative intelligence is the idea that what you really require is leaders of innovation. 
And by leaders of innovation, we mean leaders that are able to use whatever innovative capacities they personally have, but who can work with diverse teams and draw out their innovative capacities and mix it all together to come up with innovative ideas. So it's not about the leader being the most innovative, it's about the leader who's a catalyst to draw out the innovative capacities of individuals and teams. And when you start doing that in organizations, you get some inroads into getting innovation part of the culture of how people work. You also get a secondary gain, which is wonderful. You get much higher engagement because everybody's involved. It's not about a hero who saves the company. And you ultimately get much better outcomes. Well, and I think innovation in leadership is so interesting because if you've got the CEO with a clear vision and strategy, it's like you just said, the innovation just appears and unfolds as it should. The CEO's role becomes then the person who could establish that North Star, where are they going? Uh, and instead of saying specifically, this is what we need, allow the leaders and the employees within those broader boundaries, within that broader framework, to actually use their innovative capacities to come up with ideas. Interestingly, with, you know, in the theme of this podcast, uh, one discovery we found in innovative intelligence, which we didn't anticipate at the outset, was the importance of emotional intelligence as people develop their innovative intelligence. You see, if in fact people are going to be expected to be leaders, who could work with diverse groups, you're gonna get conflicting ideas. And you need leaders to also have that emotional intelligence, the ability to know what they feel, to observe others and, and know how others are reacting to different situations, be able to communicate that in interaction and not get scared by conflict, but rather embrace the conflict as long as the conflict is without contempt. So when we have conflict without contempt, which means it's about the issue, leaders need to be able to surface the differences rather than trying to say everything is the same. And that requires emotional intelligence as a key component of what's required in order to generate new innovative ideas. Well, and I'm so happy that you mentioned emotional intelligence because it's one of the the creative ways that I came up with the name for the podcast. And I think imperfection, imperfect has its place. And why do you think leaders don't feel their strategy could maybe be implemented or like you said, set the North Star if they don't lead with some emotional intelligence, those core leadership skills? Why do you think there's a reservation there? Leaders in many cases have been brought up with the mindset that you're supposed to get it right the first time, you're supposed to not make mistakes, your job is to work with people to get the organization to do what it needs to do. Uh, and that led leaders to be in an environment and to think about their role as ultimately delivering the outcome and getting it right the first time. But when you're in a world of complexities where there, are, there really is no research to tell us what we should do, 
there is no best practice in a world of complexity where things are ambiguous and uncertain. We call this a VUCA world. Uh, the V stands for volatile, the U stands for uncertain, the C for complexity, the A for ambiguity. When you're in that world and there is no answer, we need to start talking to the customers more, talk to the clients, talk to the members, talk to the public, the students, uh, the patients. We need to get out there and understand their needs and by virtue of doing that, we're going to have to do more iteration, which means that people are going to have to be okay emotionally with not getting it right the first time. They have to be okay with going back to that user and saying, you said this is what troubled you. Does this meet your needs well enough? And they'll say, well, some of it does, some of it doesn't. And uh, go ahead and fix it and come back again. And so we have to get good at this iteration process which means imperfection is gonna be built into the thinking process. Uh, I, I've been struggling a little bit with this language that people use about failure. You know, we say you have to embrace failure. No one really is saying embrace failure. We're not embracing failure. If you have to put a two in a box and you put a three in the box, that's a failure that we can't accept. If there is a best practice and we know how to do it, we expect you to deliver it right the first time on that complicated task. But so many more things now are in this world of complexity where no one knows the answer. And of course, we're going to have to iterate to discover the solution that makes the most sense. And what we mean by you have to fail fast is we mean iteration. Go out there, try a little something, a, a minimal viable product, see what people respond to. And by virtue of doing that, you'll learn from it and then you'll make it a little bit better and you'll make it a little bit better and you'll make it a little bit better. And each one of those imperfections gets you ultimately to what you really require. Well, and I'm, I, I love that you brought up VUCA because that's been COVID-19. We couldn't have a better uh -huh. VUCA model right now, could we, David? <laughs> well, you know, volatile, Sure feels uncertain, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the C stands for complexity. In other words, that we, it really is no cookie cutter answer. Uh, and then ambiguity, you know, no one knows. All that's true. And I've been telling people, because we've been asked to do a lot of scenario planning, like what are the possibilities and how do we respond to all those different possibilities? Uh, so if you take VUCA and you say, well, what's the flip side of VUCA? Well, volatile, what if leaders get a vision. You know, where do we ultimately want to go? Um, do we know where we want to go? Don't make it a destination because no one knows the destination. But how do you actually give a sense of the direction that we're going? And the U is uncertainty. What if we started to shape that into understanding? You know, how do we define our purpose? What are we all about? Can that purpose guide us? Why we exist? And ultimately, by understanding our why we exist, our core values, who are we? it might give us some guidance as we try to iterate and figure out what the next steps are. The C is complexity and the opposite of complexity in this world is curiosity. How do we in, in, engage all of our employees and welcome the curiosity rather than just following a specific pattern that's required of everybody because they have to follow their roles and responsibility. But we need to encourage that curiosity. And the A, which is ambiguity, ambiguity is you know, where people just don't know what to do. We have to embrace the agility. And the A stands for agile. The ability to actually make a difference by uh, looking at things from different perspectives, from the customer's perspective, um, engaging in deep insight, 
looking at how you can ideate about what to do in this complex environment. And then ultimately the last part becomes how do you iterate and test and iterate and test and iterate and test. Very much around the design thinking framework applied to this. VUCA is a classic example of where that kind of approach is really required. Oh, absolutely. And, and we've seen so much since March 11th. I know mm. that you have done a publication on leadership with respect to driven HR, human resources. And you've stated that it's not a restarting or a restating of the ideas from the recent past, but rather revealing what mastery in HR leadership means. Can you share with the listeners what is that mastery that, that needs to be not only stable in HR, but implemented? The HR world has gone through tremendous evolution in the last 25 years. And it's very exciting to see how in many organizations, the contribution of human resources professionals is contributing to a change in the way work is being done in a very, very positive way. Uh, one of the features that I've been arguing from my first book on HR, which was called High Impact HR, and then later in another edition, it was called High Performance HR. Uh, and then in this book, Leadership Driven HR, which is a book that recently came out, uh, what the argument has been that what human resources professionals have historically done is they've taken care of people. And it's important that HR knows how to take care of people, empower leaders to be able to take care of people, uh, make sure that the place is safe from the time that an employee joins to as they develop throughout their career. So it's almost like that personal journey that becomes something which is extremely important for us to think about. Uh, but the added value that HR really knows how to do when they are really contributing great value is when they are understanding of organizational systems. So it's not just the individual journey, but it becomes things that are systemic within the overall enterprise. So can the HR professional ultimately be the resident center of excellence on how do you implement change. That idea on change was first suggested in a book by David Ulrich called Human Resources Champions in his first major work in HR that was transformational because it opened up the idea that HR is more than the employee journey, but rather the organizational journey to becoming a better place, more capable for everybody to be able to do what they want to do. So I built on those ideas and others to start saying, well, what's the HR role, for example, in the area of building culture? And should HR be able to do that? Should HR also be able to build the kind of talent capacity in the organization so that the organization would have the readiness, no matter what they're doing, to have the leadership and the employee talent to deliver the outcomes they want. Uh, should HR be able to communicate? I've been arguing for a long time that if HR doesn't have communications within its own mandate, then it has no voice. So it needs communication, either directly in their organization or very closely aligned. And all those systemic pieces 
are the part of HR that has created new value that is extremely important for us to consider. When I think about innovation, because I spoke a lot about HR as a driver of innovation, I would say HR needs to think about innovation as a prequel to change. We've done a good job at getting skilled at knowing how to be an expert in how you do change. Why don't we also become an expert in how you generate the innovative idea that eventually you will have to use your expertise to implement that change? So innovation and building leaders of innovation is actually a step before the expertise of implementing the change. So it's a natural extension. It's like I watched the movie on change, now I'm watching the prequel on innovation. And I was arguing, and a number of organizations are doing this, where HR is really embracing this possibility as well. When HR professionals master this expansion beyond the people life cycle to the organizational life cycle, a very, very important positive developments emerge. Oh, I'm sitting here smiling ear to ear because yes, it is systemic. I fully agree with you. And I used to be a disability uh, case manager in the community. And one of the things that used to frustrate me was you'd be dealing with a large organization and human resources is involved because someone's gone off on a short-term disability claim and then disability management's involved and trying to bridge that gap sometimes was painstaking for me. And it's like everything you've just encompassed. We must change our behaviors to change our culture. And even though it is systematic, we always have to put the intrinsic value of people first. So I, I think we've evolved, David. I agree with you. I still think we have a way to go. And I just want to piggyback on that and ask you, what do you think the impact of COVID-19 has kind of left on the HR world? So what's happening with COVID-19 is clearly very, very challenging for uh, many parts of the organization. Uh, throughout every industry, public sector, private sector, uh, some sectors like healthcare have been absolutely remarkable and wonderful. People are applauding them when they come home at night. Uh, the resilience of individuals in this situation from March 16th till now has been remarkable. And I applaud all of the leaders and the HR professionals who were extremely flexible and willing to try new things very rapidly. So for example, there were priorities that HR professionals and other departments had within organizations that usually were on a three-year time horizon that all of a sudden got accelerated to one week. For example, work from home. You know, HR, a lot of them had policies in place about what you're allowed to do, how much time you can work from home. And all of a sudden, during lockdown, everybody was at home. There wasn't a question whether you're going to come into work unless you were really, really required and it was under a number of very, very important restrictions. Uh, but very quickly, notwithstanding all of the typical policies and rules that have to be done, the HR professionals have stepped up to it, and I'm really proud of many HR professionals uh, from the VP level right down, right to the person who is in the front line. Uh, it's been exciting. I, I've also seen uh, a lot of openness and fluidity in the organization that allows people to communicate not through hierarchical structure, uh, 
but people, because they have to go rapidly to the person that's involved, are going from one level, three levels, different and different sides. The speed with which people have been working has been remarkable and worthy of thinking about as a lesson learned opportunity of why can't we continue to do this when things start to settle down, hopefully again. Uh, I anticipate that you know, this, we're not going to go back to everybody has to come back to the office all the time. Uh, you know, human resources professionals, I believe, will adjust to a number of the welcome positive surprises that employees showed through their resiliency and independence in the, their ability to work remotely. Uh, and of course, there were challenges. You know, there are always challenges in these things. But if we look at the part that was positive here, there's a lot to build on as a great learning experience through the crisis. And my hope is that the human resources professionals will see the parts that we just learned through a massive experiment in human behavior to be able to leverage that for a different way of working and transformational culture within most organizations. Well, I agree with you. I coach uh, a number of executives and C-suite leaders, and I too have seen a tremendous amount of resiliency and just the transition with the larger companies, you know, having their workers be at home and making that work remotely. And I think it's opened up a lot of new strategies and, and the ability to try things. And like you said, not worry about the failure, but try something and initiate that strategy and see how it's going to happen because it's not like there was a choice in the matter. We had to work from home. We had to make this change. So I agree with you. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you've also witnessed that amongst HR as I have. Well, so, well, for example, just if I might, uh, the, the what I'm finding over the last number of months, a number of things have occurred, uh, including, you know, uh, lots of challenges, obviously. But one thing that's been rather positive in this world of imperfection is uh, the realization that since no one knows what's going to happen, the requirement becomes one of openness to alternative scenarios and thinking about what are all the possible realities that might occur over the next year, next two years, next three years, and not to then say, we'll pick one and that's the way we'll believe the world will evolve, but actually to be able to be more agile and respond to multiple scenarios and recognize that that imperfection, the imprecision, uh, that we, yes, we will look at what's predictable, but we also need to look about what's plausible and what's possible, and perhaps even what's preposterous, to be able to think about how we are going to respond really rapidly uh, to those different environments. How do we get employees to engage with this uh, world of uncertainty and, and uh, ambiguity in a very positive way? And HR professionals have a crucial role. Leaders throughout the organization have a, a crucial role. Executives have a crucial role. And I would even suggest boards of directors, an area where I, I do a fair bit of activity, uh, they need to be open and thinking about the possibilities in different kinds of ways. I think there's always something positive to, to see in every situation, and I couldn't agree more. I like to end my podcast with the Fab Four, and these are just four fun questions, David, and whatever is, is on the top of your mind is the right answer. There's no wrong answer. 
So my first question to you is, what has working on five continents taught you about people? In what it's taught me opposite things. On the one level, there is so much that we see that is common. People have emotions, they have real lives, they're real people, they uh, respond to things and challenges. Uh, COVID has had certain similarities throughout the world where people have been ingenious in their responses, have been funny in some cases, but we see that human characteristic, we're all part of this global entity and it's a, in a way heartwarming. We're, we're really so similar. But the other part I find with cultural differences working on five continents in various executive assignments is the nuances that distinguish groups are extremely important and something not to not to really do a deep dive into. It's almost like when you do problem solving and you get various ideas, the, the objective isn't to say everybody's saying the same thing. It's actually to celebrate the difference and celebrate how that difference, that unique contribution, that unique lens, that unique culture, that unique perspective an individual brings will give us a different insight that we might not have had before. And I find that very gratifying to see the differences and actually embrace it rather than find it challenging or try to, in a way, dismiss it, which would be, I, I would think, destructive. So both at the same time, how similar and yet how there's precious differences that we need to actually draw out and recognize and appreciate. Well, and it, it opens up an opportunity to learn from each other. So I love that answer. My second question is, what makes you happy? So what makes me happy was the question? Correct. Uh, I'm a learner. And so for me, I, I always feel happiest when I'm learning, when I'm uh, finding a way to help others learn, because I teach a great deal and to share ideas. And when I see growth, when I see learning occur, I find that uh, very gratifying. And at the same time, I also find it gratifying working with organizations that have as its core purpose trying to do something that's meaningful for the world. I do work with organizations that are producing product uh, that you, you know that's important for people. And, but you know, when I work in a healthcare environment where people are passionately serving the patient or an education environment where they're passionately caring about the student, uh, you know, where you're working in environments where uh, people are trying to change the world, there is a certain gratification that you're part of a very important journey that might create difference for more than just myself, but for a larger entity. Oh, that's lovely. Just having that impact. Now, this is going to be a hard one, but I want you to think of one word that you would give thus far for 2020. So we had a slight skip in the transmission. So if you can repeat the question. What one word, can only have one word, would you give for the year 2020 thus far? 
one word for the year 2020 thus far. For me, you know, the word that everybody's using is unprecedented. I, I, I don't, I don't think this is unprecedented. Uh, you know, we've been talking about SARS. We've been talking about H1N1, Ebola. Uh, we know that pandemics can occur. Uh, so in a way, the real issue has not been that this has never occurred. But I, I think for me, for 2020, it's humility. It's a sense that we're just people. You know, we aren't more powerful than the climate. The climate is more powerful than us. The environment is more powerful than us. Uh, we could do the best we can with what we have. But things happen like COVID-19 that are bigger than us. And it's egalitarian. It, it, the rich and the poor are experiencing the same situation. Of course, we do know that certain populations have been unable to be resourced in the same way. So there have been very serious disadvantages that have occurred. But I think the overall sense of, as human beings, we are not all powerful. So the word humility comes to mind and possibly the, the related word to be humble uh, as we go forward into this quite uncertain reality. Well, I love that. And I love that word. And I, I can almost feel that gratitude is, is, is right behind it for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So my last question, David, is if there's a leader that you hold in high regard, who's either living or has passed away, who would you like to have dinner with? Who's that leader in your, in your vision and why? The, there's just so many. I, I remember one colleague of mine in Polisar, uh, in, he used to, in Sarnia, he used to, every time there were consultants who came to town, he'd invite them all to dinner just to talk to them and, and just listen to their stories. And uh, there's just so much wisdom out there to learn from. Uh, I had a, a dear friend who uh, was, a mentor of mine for many years. His name was Dr. David Backen. And, you know, he was a, a thinker. He was a philosopher. And we would spend time thinking about ideas once a week. Uh, and we may look at some innovative text, but he's not the kind of person that is well known to the extent of, let me pick a, a well-known guru who I might want to sit with, but someone who was brilliant. And through the conversation, I heard him, he heard me. Uh, we ended up learning and growing together. So he's no longer alive. So I would welcome the opportunity to have another dinner with him as well. Oh, that's, that's lovely. Well, David, I could sit and interview you for hours and hours on end. I'm so grateful that you took the time to be on the podcast. And I just want to thank you for your heart-centered leadership, for everything you're doing to teach others, your research, your writing, and I'm sure there's lots more to come from you in the future. So thank you for spending time with me today. Well, thank you so much and uh, continue this wonderful work. The world is totally imperfect and we should celebrate it. 
I agree. I like to end my podcast with my five things, and that is to follow your heart, have passion, do your best, know your truth, and always be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thank you for joining me this afternoon on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.